0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nat Alliance Now. I'm Jay Williams, and this week we have the fifth and final installment of our Cyber Risk Series. My guest, as usual, is the brilliant Paul Burkett, and together we take one last deep dive into the world of cyber exposures, this time from an agent E&O perspective. Throughout the series, Paul has consistently delivered insightful and pertinent information to help you understand and manage cyber exposures, and this episode is no exception. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Paul, it's good to be back with you uh, again today, and I'm looking forward to today's podcast. Although I am sad because it's the it's the last one uh, of us being together. So uh, this is this is installment number five on our cyber risk topic. And so I think today our focus is going to be on um, agent E&O exposures and risk management associated with that. So can you just kind of recap the exposures that insurance have so that we can understand how they impact the agent's E&O exposure? Well, part of it comes directly
1: from the marketplace and what's happening in the marketplace. Right now, we've had a surge uh, of ransomware, and I highlighted that earlier. And it's driving a lot of the loss ratios for 2020, and it's causing cyber insurance prices to go up. And that's what analysts and brokers are saying, including Moody's Analytics came out and said that the insurance industry loss ratio this year for 2020 will be in excess of 50% or higher. And that's a significant shift for all of us in terms of the marketplace, because we were seeing pricing between 2015 and 2018 going down even though loss ratios were beginning to increase, uh, they were not significant as they have been in 2020. We know that the direct premiums written for the cyber line have increased since 2015 and has become a must-have for most organizations. And the premium volume is up from $488 million to over $1.3 billion in 2019. And they're estimating Uh, 2020 will close out about $1.6 billion worth of premium volume. That's quite significant when you look at a marketplace that's growing in that area. We know that the demand for cyber coverage continues to increase given the changing nature of the risk and the persuasiveness of the technology that's coming in. We keep seeing more and more new technology coming in. And we're seeing a significant impact to the supply chain risk. And what I mean on that. Is more and more of the carriers are starting to look at what's the relationship that I have with this insured? Do I also have their upstream partner as well? Uh, do I have one of their co-partners or entities? In other words, they're starting to look at aggregating, aggregating of risk. And that aggregating of risk is going to have some impact on pricing as well. Uh, as you start to look into it, how many are supplying Cisco or how many are supplying Costco? And what's the interconnections on that? And is there going to be one event that could take in and bring in multiple companies? That's going to have an impact to us. And so, coverage and price decisions are going to become a bigger and bigger challenge. And that's why we've done this podcast to get everybody to understand A, the problems, B, the risk management issues, and C, the coverages that you need to have and be prepared to handle those, and so that you can then understand how to avoid getting into a broker e you and know, exposure as we get into it. We're seeing more and more that buyers uh, without robust insurance continue to find themselves on the short end, finding themselves not having the coverage they anticipated. They're finding themselves in situations where they may have made representations about the systems they had in place, which in fact turns out to be a misrepresentation, and in fact, the insurance companies are avoiding coverage and not paying coverage. We know that at this point in time, 51% of consulting and legal services are paid by cyber insurance carriers for data breach claims. That's a significant amount, of, and we're doing a pretty good job selling that. We know that 36% of victim restitution claims are being paid by cyber insurance carriers and data breach claims. That's kind of low but it tells us that we may not have as much identity theft elements as we thought originally when we started pricing this product. We know that 30% of the regulatory fines have been paid by the cyber insurance. Now, this is a scary one. 30% el- alludes that, while well, everybody's buying it. Not everybody is buying regulatory fines and penalty coverage or the PCI uh, DSS coverage necessary for compliance as well. So, this one's a sleeper that's going to cause some problems. We know that 29% of recovery technology costs are being paid by cyber. This is our forensics. And what we're finding that's problematic in the forensics is they're finding the problem, but they walk away once they find it, they don't fix it. So, we're not having the rectification cost. And so that should be a higher number when we start adding in the rectification cost or fixing the problem. Find and fix the problem. The biggest item that is really unknown and is getting quite scary is the element of the ransomware and the extortion costs. Only 10% have been paid by the insurance carriers, and there's some specific rules about how to handle ransomware, and the insurance company's involvement has to go into it. And there have been some elements that have come out recently indicating paying ransomware may find themselves subject to problems with the Treasury Department, and I'll highlight that in a little bit. This all came from the 2020 cost of data breach, but it highlights areas where we could have problems from an errors and emissions standpoint, and we need to be aware of it as we put together the coverage. We know that typical data breach claims are not covered 100%. As such, there's going to be gaps in insurance, and that means we don't have the proper endorsement, or we need to add an endorsement. We didn't bring in the proper trigger on the insuring agreement on the deck page by indicating that I wanted insuring agreement one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in some instances, and then making sure you had the proper limits. And then on top of that, a lot of the coverage forms have sublimits which are inadequate to cover the loss exposures. Which, if they're inadequate to do that, you're going to find. Why didn't you recommend that I get higher limits as an E and O claim? We've also know that a lot of people are starting to say, Well, why didn't you tell me to go to three million or five million in limits? Why did you sell me a five hundred thousand or a million dollar coverage? So inadequate limits are starting to raise their ugly head. And of course, the key element when understanding this product, being claims made, is is defense within the limits. And Defense Inside the Limits has a significant impact on the overall coverages that we've got. So this is creating some gaps and holes that we need to be aware of.
0: That's amazing when you think about it. So, so let me ask you this. And what do you see as some of the coverage pitfalls for agents and brokers?
1: Well, some of the coverage pitfalls are some of the obvious ones. We've all been trained on claims made. We understand retrospective dates, and we know extended reporting periods. But tied with that is the prior and pending litigation exclusions and other items that are causative events. We do know, based on what we've already talked about, we've got up to 280 days to discover an actual intrusion. Well, what does that do to the retrospective date? What does it do to the prior and pending, especially when you're coming up with a renewal or changing carriers? We have some new pitfalls and challenges as we start to manage what is an occurrence, what is the trigger for that, and does the, the coverage form need it? Do I need to have and buy extended reporting period when I move from one carrier to another because I don't know about the causative events or uh, that have taken place? We know that unauthorized access is a coverage trigger. However the negligent act by an employee that provides access of their password or is tricked in providing access to that, is that covered? The devil in the detail is going to be the wrongful act language. Are we spending the time to understand what are the key triggers in all of the insuring agreements we're looking at? And do we understand that it, how pervasive or how limiting that wrongful act definition is? Because we've got a commonality now of wrongful acts showing up in most of the cyber policies, but we have to understand that to make sure we, if we need an endorsement or a clarifying endorsement on that. The big one that's jumping out, and this has happened in the last 18 months, is the minimum required security practices exclusion. Basically, this is tying into the application. When you make a representation on the application that you're doing these minimum required security practices, that's a warranty. And that warranty can be a way to rescind or void coverage. And so, best security practices is to make sure you at least meet that minimum security that you put onto that. And the key for us is to try to get rid of that kind of an exclusion and uh, looking at a pitfall that's into that. And then, of course, the whole element uh, in terms of what are the acts of foreign countries attacking. And the whole war cyber terrorism issue has been expanding, and new definitions are coming out of that. And it's creating some new challenges, including, are we selling any kind of cybercrime coverage? And if we're not selling cybercrime and relying on the crime form, you don't have cyberterrorism coverage. And that becomes another thoughtful element to think about as we start going into and looking at some of the pitfalls. Additional things to look at, and I'm going to give an example. This is just a recent event. An Access Capital Holdings unit was not obligated to reimburse a silicone manufacturer for the wire transfer theft of more than $1 million under its coverage's computer transfer fraud provision because company officials had approved the transfer, said a federal appeals court, in affirming a lower court order. In October 2017, the chief financial officer of Burnside, Mississippi-based Mississippi Silicon Holdings, LLC, received an email from a regular vendor advising that future payments should be routed to a new bank account, according to Thursday's ruling by the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. Now, this is social engineering, and this is cybercrime. And social engineering and cybercrime are going to become significant elements along with the ransomware. Now, let's take this a little bit further. There was a letter relaying the same instructions written on the vendor's letterhead and signed by the vendor executive, which was attached to the email. And the email's body also contained the previous emails between the chief financial officer and the vendor's personnel concerning the invoices and shipping details. The official then authorised two wire transfers to the vendor's new bank account, totaling $1.025 million. And the ruling said the payments were made in accordance with the company's three-step verification process for large transfers. The chief, officer, chief financial officer initiated the transfer. Another company employee confirmed it on the bank's website and the company's chief operating officer orally authorized the transfer on a phone call with a bank representative. The company realized it was cyber fraud victim two months later when the vendor called to discuss outstanding payments and thought they'd already made it. They filed a claim for $1,025,831 under the provisions of the commercial crime policy. Access sent MSH a check for $100,000 that was the limit for its policy social engineering fraud provision, but refused to pay for the claim under its policy computer transfer fraud provision, which had a million-dollar limit. The suit against Access in U.S. District Court in Amory, Mississippi, ruled in the insurer's favor. It was affirmed by an unanimous three-judge appeal court. This dispute boils down to a disagreement over the interpretation of the policy's computer transfer fraud provision. The policy means what it says. Coverage under the computer transfer fraud provision is available only when a computer-based fraud scheme causes a transfer of funds without the insured's knowledge or consent. The case highlights that a potential E&O claim soon to be filed against the agent for failure to procure adequate coverage. Do you, as an agent or broker, understand the coverage you're selling in social engineering, cybercrime, crime, crime form, impersonator coverage? Do you understand what is the impact of sublimits that comes out of this case? How are you presenting the coverage and disclosing the impact or requirements for validation in a social engineering claim scenario like this. This is a legitimate item, and I anticipate seeing that the agent and broker will be brought in on this one now that the, they can't find the $900,000 for that.
0: Wow, that's amazing, that's a huge claim. So one of the things that agents don't really think about, at least in, in, in my experience, is the standard of care that they owe their insurance. You and I know that the standard of care is a moving target because it's different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Can you explain standard of care for the folks that are listening in?
1: Uh, Standard of care is a simple concept of behavior. What should be the generally accepted behavior that a agent or broker goes into? It starts out with, are you a, a licensed insurance agent or broker? if you're licensed, and then you're now in the business of soliciting, procuring, and placing insurance, you have to then follow a standard of providing reasonable care, diligence, and judgment in ordering and procuring that requested coverage from the client. Well, it applies to cyber insurance. And so you must understand the request, what they're asking for. Are they asking for social engineering? Are they asking for unauthorized act? Are they asking for privacy invasion? Are they asking for business income? Are they asking for PCI compliance coverage? So you have to be aware of that. And then if you're unable to provide that coverage or procure that coverage, you got to give them prompt notice that you're unable to do that so that appropriate measures can be done to protect the client, such as going to another broker, another company, another agent to go and procure the coverage. So that's the general rule. We can solicit it, we can do it, but we got to order it and do what we agree to, and if we're unable to, to tell them in a timely manner that they could procure other coverage. Now also in that, it generates into other areas of our performance or our behavior. We can get sued for failure to obtain coverage, commonly referred to as faulty coverage. We can get sued for failure to place coverage after agreeing to procure because you've gotten a quotation and you didn't get the uh, coverages that everybody had quoted on it. A failure to provide proper advice, which is a heightened standard of care, getting us into the area of more professional standard, and that'll vary on a case by case basis. A failure to advise the insured promptly of rejection of coverage or inability to place coverage, and included in that is the cancellation, non renewal, Uh, aspects of what can occur to an insurance coverage. The other, of course, is the fare to renew coverage as requested by the client and providing the updated information or supplemental applications that are required by the insurance carrier. Fare to service the policy. In other words, make sure you get the proper endorsements, make sure the proper premium payments are taking place. Also to make sure that the proper payment plans and any premium financing is done on that. Also, the failure to place on best terms and conditions available. Now, that's sort of a gray area, but it's always one of those that's asserted against us. And then, of course, misrepresentation and placing with an insolvent carrier always creates additional items for us in terms of what are the cyber claims that we can deal with in terms of any litigation that's filed against an agent or broker in procuring cyber professional liability or errors and emissions
0: coverage. You know, in, in in days gone by, um, I ran the Agent e program here for the Florida Association of Insurance Agents. And at that time, we saw most of the claims we saw were all procedural in nature. Uh, over time, w- what I've seen is that claims seem to have shifted more towards coverage issues than procedural issues. What What are your thoughts regarding that? It used to be the rule of thumb
1: 50% of the claims were procedural and 50% were knowledge based we're now seeing it becoming more and more knowledge based uh, 66% of all ENO you know, claims are coming from improper coverage which means there's some kind of a knowledge issue in that so within faulty coverage or improper coverage there are three major subproblems failure to obtain the proper coverage failure to obtain coverage and failure to renew coverage and all three of those have uh, an impact on us on faulty coverage. And so the risk is in the beginning, the middle, and at the end, and renewing. It's all uh, all of those items. since how we apply our knowledge. So the key elements for us in looking at this deals with our ability to analyze the risk properly uh, and not offering to obtain cyber coverage is a necessity. So we're in a situation now that all proposals should say recommend you buy cyber insurance, recommend you buy cyber insurance. It's no longer a nice to have, oh, we forgot to put it on our proposal. It should be there all the time because it it is a necessity today. The process of not physically requesting the proper coverage. Just because you get an indication from a carrier is not getting proper coverage. You're going to have to go out and fill out an application, get hard numbers, hard limits, and let the client understand what's taking place. And then, of course, not receiving the requested coverage from the insurance company. In other words, you ordered it, it comes in, and it's not there, not clarifying and getting that corrected prior to providing it to the client. We, in the past, we always thought it was a procedural error 50% of the time and 50% based on knowledge. But knowledge errors in the cyber and technology and procurement are huge. They continue to grow. Not understanding the trigger of wrongful act, not understanding which insuring agreements are applying, not understanding the sublimits. Those are all knowledge-based items, and that's why we're finding in the cyber and the technology area that the claims are more knowledge-based, moving us to that 66% range I talked about earlier. Generally, there must be a finding of express or implied contract to advise, creating a special relationship. Well, what I'm finding in most of the cyber liability claims against agents and brokers, they have gotten into the heightened standard of care. They are into the affirmative obligation to provide advice because the client doesn't understand it. And remember, when we started this process in this podcast, I said you need to understand the need and sell the need to the client. They have to understand the exposure. That puts us into that heightened standard, that special relationship professional standard of care. And we have become, in the area of cyber and technology, errors and emissions type items, more of a risk advisor. And in that procurement, and that means we're having clients that are substantially relying upon us. And we have to understand that duty. And then through that, we as brokers and agents have to look at our agents' errors and emissions limits and our coverages and limitations that are going to be applied to that because faulty coverage is going to be a substantial reliance issue upon what we're doing. We know that we have a certain skill, a certain knowledge level. We're constantly training. We're required to be updating ourselves to maintain our uh, licenses. And as such, Part of the educational process today and going forward is you need to be updating your skill set on cyber and technology items. We know that you have a duty to know the types of coverages available, know the types of carriers that are involved. In other words, being able to canvas the marketplace, understand what over 65 active insurance companies are providing in terms of that. Are they providing standalone products? Are they endorsements onto coverage forms? What are the limitations? What are the sublimits? All become elements we have to bring into this coverage. We may and have expressly because of contract, because we're consulting, or implicitly agree to recommend coverages and limits to our client. If we are doing that, that puts us into that slippery slope of being a higher standard of care and a professional eye to it. That puts us into saying, how do we avoid some of that a little bit? And that's where you always provide options. Provide the options, let the client choose, become significant items. We know the potential of any claim uh, claim under cyber liability. We know how long it takes. We know what the average cost per claim has been. We've given you that information. We know we need to continuously work on that as we go forward. Today, we know a mega breach of data over 50 million records can reach a price tag of $392 million. In fact, the target case, recent decision just made up in St. Paul, Minnesota, basically said, no, you're only going to get the insurance of $90 million. The rest of it you have to pay out of your pocket target. And remember, their their, uh, mega breach was close to 110 million records. A breach of a million to 10 million records costs an average of $50 million. How much is enough? Is a decision for the insured and the client and the agent broker to work out with. And that's why options become such a significant element as we try to build this program for our client. So impact to limits, the definition of occurrence, continuing exposure to a similar condition, the aggregating of all of that becomes an element. How does the sublimit work into it? Uh, what are the adequate limits? Uh, what are you plying for yourself in terms of adequate limits? We know that the cost of a consequence of a data breach can continue for years following the event. We know that 61% of the average data breach costs incurred in the first year, 92% in the first two years. We know it's 280 days to discover the data breach. If that's the case, we need to manage renewals we need to understand concurrency of coverage from year one to year two, understand our retro dates, understand the triggers in the policy, understand the need for extended reporting period all become significant elements in just dealing with the concept of the faulty coverage
0: issue. Wow, you know it's so much to unpack as a as an agent or a broker when you when you think about the the impact of cyber uh, risk and, and not just on yourself, but but on the advice that you give insureds. So in our second installment, we talked uh, about risk management as it related to the insured. So talk about risk management as it relates to E&O exposure when an agent is selling cyber coverage and the importance of expertise in that process.
1: Well, first off, the licensed insurance agent and broker needs to have some knowledge. And therefore, with that knowledge, be careful in how you provide risk control advice. Uh, Make sure you understand what you're suggesting and uh, elements. And we talked about that in the risk management section. But make sure you understand it. Uh, Just don't list something off or send it out in an email without understanding what you're saying. We should stay generic in discussions and let the professionals provide the advice. Specifically, I'm getting into bring in the forensic expert, bring in the auditor who audits these systems to give the specific advice on uh, what's taking place. Uh, we should consider that we will be a risk advisor with the heightened professional standard of care. Therefore, we must maintain our credibility by staying current in education, updating ourselves, taking once a year or more Uh, some kind of a cyber course related to the insurance company providing it or through the National Alliance, Uh, finding ways and looking at it, and hopefully you're learning something from being on this podcast. Uh, Remember that staying generic in advice and risk management becomes so important. So items that are generic. Invest in a security orchestration automation response, commonly referred to as a SOAR program. Uh, to prove detection or response. That keeps you out of trouble. But the SOAR program fits with who the vendor will be coming in and doing the analysis or the uh, tech person who's going to be doing the work. Ask the question in the application, we're seeing it now, where a zero-trust security model to help prevent unauthorized access. What is that process? That becomes part of the applications now, and do you understand what a zero trust security model should be? If you see these terms or hear these terms and they don't make sense to you, Google it, go out and take a look. I recommend to most of my clients that they do have some kind of a stress test done on their system, done by an outside vendor to come in and see how their re- incident response plan will take place and how they'll respond. Now, a lot of our clients aren't doing stress tests, but should. Also, other elements that we could recommend to them is uh Hey, you ought to ask your vendor to give you some help in determining your endpoints and remote employee access. What are we doing? How are we controlling all of that? Always, always tell your client to invest in governance, risk management, compliance programs. They're going to make them better. Remember, we've got 50 states that have statutes now about privacy and privacy rules. And California has really gotten pretty nasty with their new rules that are out there right now. Try to use managed security severances to help uh, security find the gaps in the organization, the training, and the other items. Uh, Those are good generic type of things to start going into. It's a necessary coverage. We're seeing contracts now between business enterprises and upstream clients that they will not allow you to work with them unless you have cyber insurance and cyber programs or security programs in place. So we're seeing that contractually come into the forefront. And that's an ongoing item. You need to remember that the CGL uh, and commercial property policies do not respond and provide adequate coverage. You've got to be able to make that clear to the client. And that's why we have to talk standalone coverages. Remember that privacy forms of privacy evasion and uh, all of that, they have some common terms, but all of them are different and different features. And you're going to have to spend the time to read it and understand the differences. You're going to have to get resources to get that uh, understanding. That may be involving uh, getting some items from rough notes, also from ERMI, uh, looking at the Betterly Report, other items to help you gain better knowledge about it. Remember, it's about understanding first-party post-breach response expenses and coverages. Third party liability coverages for information security, privacy, regulatory defense, penalties, payment card industry, fines and assessments, website media, as well as other types of communications, social media, PDFs, emails. Are we getting that coverage? And then, of course, the contingent bodily injury and property damage liability exposures, time element coverages of business interruption, extra expense. And of course, the theft of property coverages have to be brought in as we think through this. That being the data assets, how do we restore those? The cyber extortion, the computer fraud, the funds transfer fraud, and of course, the social engineering and fraudulent instruction coverage we just talked about in that case all become important elements as you start to understand your knowledge. Included with that knowledge is you got to know your marketplace. You got to know what markets you have are admitted got to know what markets you're going to work and access through your wholesalers. Make sure you understand if you're going that route, what coverages are there. Do you understand the difference between an AIG policy and a Be- Beasley policy? Do you know what's different in a Chubb contract versus a Cincinnati contract? Do you know what Hartford's willing to take or Hiscox is willing to take? Uh, all become key issues as you start to look through it, so know your markets, know what's out there, and understand there's over sixty five active insurance markets out there writing some form of cyber insurance that's out there.
0: you know Paul, um you know I've done some expert witness work. you still do some expert witness work you're a you have your juris doctorate. We understand based on what we do or have done, you know how special relationship drives the standard of care so for agents and brokers out there what trends have you been seeing uh, related to both special relationship and ethics in 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 the E&O process well basically
1: uh, ethical agents and brokers uh, that are doing their job there's a direct correlation to the impact on E&O limits the more and more you move towards a risk advisor risk management consultant, a fee type service broker, you've got a higher standard of care. Higher standard of care meaning you've got to have higher limits. And uh, I'm seeing now more and more uh, insurance brokers, uh, small to medium size, looking at and significantly increasing their E&O limits. The large brokers have their own kind of towers and programs. But the small and medium size, I'm now starting to see people playing in the $4 to $5 million range on their E&O limits. And some are even buying in excess of that and going to the 10 to $25 million uh, because of their exposure as being found more and more as a uh, professional, not involved in the relationship of being just an order taker, uh, as we have seen over the years. The other items we've seen is that the type of uh, business you're soliciting establishes some of that uh, item. We've got commodity-driven type products that are out there. Uh, Personal auto has become commodity-driven. Homeowners has almost become commodity-driven except for the high wealth. So the type of insurance is establishing some of that standard. The type of marketing system that you are, are you a captive agency system, an independent agency system, Are you providing risk management value-added services changes uh, that element? Uh, We know that your membership in a trade association uh, with following enforceable code of ethics can create a higher amount of liability for you. And basically, everybody listening to this podcast is a CIC, and you already have professional designations, and that responsibility increases your level of ethical performance, but also in terms of your legal standards as you start to take into it. So we do look on a case-by-case basis, but all of those become components in establishing where were you in the procurement, the recommendations, the advice you gave to your clients as you start to go into this.
0: Wow. Well, you know, Paul, this has been another fascinating an informative session with you. I just have enjoyed this whole series, quite honestly, is like one of my favorite things I've done in a long time. So, so as we close out this installment, can you give us your parting thoughts to sum up what we've discussed?
1: Probably we go back to the very basics. Use the skills that you've developed As a reasonably competent producer, agent, and broker in a similar situation, doing what you're doing for the client. We're always going to look to that. And liability generally is created by the failure to procure the requested insurance or procuring insurance that is materially deficient in some way. And that's that faulty coverage that we spent talking about. This is our ethical, basic duty to our client. And when we're working with them in the cyber insurance and technology areas and emissions insurance areas. And Jay, I thank everybody for listening to us and giving me the opportunity to relay this information. I think it's been a great opportunity for me to be able to talk about all that. If the producer agrees to advise, give the the advice, but do it with the caveat of understanding. In some jurisdictions, the duty to advise may arise when the producer has a continuing relationship. Be aware of your relationships and the advice you give to the client. Liability to third parties are also starting to come into our realm. Be aware of certificate holders, lessors, lessees, additional insureds, loss payees, Uh, vendor contractors that are allowed for coverage, and don't forget our spouses, dependents, domestic partners as we start to look through all of this as we go into it. Remember that the primary intent of state insurance laws is that our insurance agents are prohibited to create unfair or deceptive practices in soliciting, selling, or servicing insurance. So honest, full disclosure and integrity Is vital for establishing the trust and the success in procuring the cyber and technology insurance relationship that you have. Again, thank you. Thank you for letting me do this. Thank you, the National Alliance. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate the time and the opportunity to share this information.
0: Well, Paul, I just, I cannot thank you enough for the time that you've put into this and the times that we've spent together and putting these installments together. And I know that the folks out there who listen to these podcasts, and there's a lot of them, uh, have appreciated the knowledge. And I know that we, you know, you've just been doing nothing but building and building and building on the building blocks that you created from the start. And so I can't thank you enough for all the time and energy that you put into this, Paul. So thank you uh, on behalf of myself, the National Alliance, and all of our listeners. Thanks again, Jay. Take care, everybody. That's it for Nat Alliance Now's Cyber Risk Series. I know I've learned a lot from these conversations with Paul, and I hope you have too. If you haven't done so already, I would suggest going back and listening to our previous installments to better understand today's cyber exposures and how they might evolve in the future. To hear those episodes, and any of our other National Alliance podcasts, check us out at SCIC.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time right here on Nat Alliance Now.